With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity and Play. I'm Steve Albert. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online and be notified of future shows at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play. And download archived editions on iTunes. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is storyteller Robert Moss. He is the best-selling author of several books, including Dreaming the Soul Back Home, and it recently released, Here, Everything is Dreaming, Poems and Stories. Robert is the creator of Active Dreaming, an original synthesis of dreamwork and shamanism. He was born in Australia and is a former lecturer in ancient history at the Australian National University. Robert Moss, welcome to Creativity and Play. Good to be with you. I'm feeling playful. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I I want to start with the uh, way you describe yourself on your website, uh, the opening line that says, when strangers ask me what I do, I often respond, I am a storyteller, and I help people to find and live their bigger and braver stories and tell and tell those stories really well. How do you? Mm, do I could have said that myself. I like it a lot. I actually find myself saying those words or something very close to them very often because I travel half the time, as you know, I'm on planes, you know, I'm traveling on planes half the year and I'm constantly sitting next, having chance encounters with people on the next seat or at the airport or whatever. And eventually the conversation will come around to what do you do or who are you? And that is my response. That is my pleasure, actually, to make stories, to gather stories and to help people to find and tell their own bigger and braver story. Because as you know, we all do better when we have the sense of connection with a drama, a story of a mythic kind, and that can carry us beyond the everyday ups and downs. So, so how do you do that? How do you help people? How, how do you that? do that, Steve? You help people to find their own sources. You help them to find the dreams, the memories, the encounters. The magic begins when you're simply, for example, meeting a stranger for the first time. It's your roommate on the plane. Maybe it's the wrong plane because you missed your connection. That happens to me regularly. And you wonder, what do you have in common? Why are you sitting next to this person, particularly if your plan's shifted and then the trickster comes into play? And so you gently start a conversation, and commonalities begin to emerge, and suddenly a story is coming out on my very last flight. I'm next to a man who I didn't expect to be next to, a rather shy, uh, introspective kind of guy. But suddenly, after we initiate a conversation, he starts talking about his love of model trains. And this was his passion as a boy. He, he loved to play with model trains. He made little worlds in the imagination. And now, as a man, he set, sets up huge model railroad outfits in his house. I don't know how his wife, co- wife copes with this because they sound enormous. And his hobby, which he loves, is becoming a line of work that satisfies him because four large train stores in the Philadelphia area are commissioning him to repair their engines, etc. And as this conversation is emerging, the man who thought he was shy about talking to people and couldn't speak is suddenly telling a 
story of his life, bringing out the boy in himself, talking in his own words, coining his own one-liners about how you can turn a hobby into work in the good sense, how your play can become your work. And we have a story going, and as he's getting his story together, I find more of my own story coming out, the boy in me who loved model trains too. So you can't do this kind of thing without being willing to improvise at every moment. It's about spontaneity. It's not about planning. It's about getting off plan and seeing what is going to bubble through. And of course, as a dreamer and a teacher of dreaming, I help people to understand that the big story is hunting you always, but especially, especially the big story is likely to find you in your dreams. I can give you a poem about that if you like. Great. Go ahead. All right, here's the very first poem in my new collection. It's just up, Here Everything is Dreaming, Poems and Stories. And it's called Hunting Power. And it applies to Steve's question, how do you connect with the bigger story? This is really fundamentally in poetic speech, the response to Steve's question. So I'll slow down a bit. I'm capable of doing that. The title of the poem is Hunting Power. You say you are hunting your power, but your power is hunting you. I'll go up to the mountain, you say. I'll fast and live on seaweed. I'll hang myself on a meat hook under the hot sun. I'll give up sex and wine and my sense of humor. What are you thinking of? For you to go hunting your power is as smart as the mouse hunting the cat. Go out in the garden any night. Step one inch outside the tame land, and you are near what you seek. Open the window of your soul any night, and your guide may come in. The issue is whether you'll run away when you see what it is. To make sure you succeed, tether yourself like a goat at the edge of the tiger wood that breathes right beside your bed. He'll come. So that's the poem called Hunting Power. It could be called Hunting the Big Story, and I'll add one word from my native Australia. The first people of my native Australia, the Aboriginal people, say this, Steve. Marianne knows this. Marianne knows this well. The big stories are hunting the right people to tell them. And when you hear that, you think of a predator stalking in the bush, sniffing, looking for you if you're ready and capable of carrying the big story, or the shark circling in the waters. I like that. I think that's what it's about. It's about... It's about getting out of the little mind to getting into the borderlands of life and consciousness where the big story can, can find you. And in, this, and in this, of course, play is essential. Play is the only thing worth taking seriously in regard to this kind of thing. And with that, I'll comment that I know you're very playful, Robert, and playful action is really part of your whole active dreaming model. So I wonder if you could, um, especially for those who don't know about your work and about active dreaming. How does that how does that work? How do we reach the power and importance of dreams in our lives and in in healing and having full lives through active dreaming? What does that what does that mean? Well the que- you could rephrase the question in your own language. You can say how can we play with this, right? You said, how right. can we work with this? How can we play with this? Uh, you know, right. I like new stories, so let me begin with a story from this week. I woke on Monday morning charged with wonderful energy. In my dream, on a rise overlooking the sea, 
I was bringing out the words and the tune of a new song, a wing song, shamans would call this, a song that helps people to journey in consciousness. As you know, in my workshops, we use shamanic drumming and suggestion and make great flight plans so people have all sorts of adventures in non-ordinary reality. In my dream, as I rise from it after a couple of hours in bed into the sunlight of the spring on Monday morning, I have a song. We are flying till we're swimming. We are swimming till we're traveling into the land. I have the tune and I have the words and lots of words. It's the, the three verses now. And I write this down and I immediately, immediately make a painting. I don't worry about my artistic gifts. I grab some oil crayons. I grab some pencils. I grab some pens. I make a painting, not of the scene of the dream, but of where the energy in the song is leading me. And as I do that, I feel the boy artist in me who loved to paint and draw coming out to be with me. And Marianas, his energy stayed with me all day. The other creative projects were easy. I had I was charged with superabundant creative energy because I was going with the music of the dream. I was bringing out the boy, the boy creator in me who wants to be close to me and gave me juice and joy all day long. These things are waiting for us, every one of us. True magic is bringing the gifts of a deeper reality into this reality. How do you do that? Well, make space for your dreams to start with. And let's notice, when we talk about dreams, we're not just talking about experiences during sleep. This is the deficit of the, the Western mind. Mind. Dreams might be about what goes on during sleep, and you might have tremendous experiences in sleep, which might, be, might, might save your life and reorient your life and restore your inner compass. So that's important. But dreaming is also about what goes on, goes on in the borderlands of consciousness and the hypnagogic zone and the zone between sleep and wake when many creative discoveries are made. I've spent a great deal of time in that liminal territory. Dreaming is also about playing with the signs and symbols of the world around you, walking in the forest of living symbols that are looking at you, to borrow from the French poet Baudelaire, speaking with poetic clarity about these things. It's about being attentive to the speaking land, as Aborigines call it, to the many voices, the many messages, the many symbols that daily life will give us. It's about learning to travel in consciousness with focused intention. I teach all of these things. But what's great about the kind of stuff that I teach is that although there are all sorts of advanced techniques, dreaming is a discipline, and you only get to the good stuff through practice, 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 despite that. It's available to all of us. It's our birthright. Everybody dreams in the sense of sleep dreams and wandering impressions and hypnagogia. Even the hardhead who says, I don't dream, is only saying, I don't remember my dreams. And once you have a practice for sharing this stuff with a good friend, and maybe with strangers. Uh, you can become a shaman and creator at the breakfast table or whenever else you want to do it, any day of your life. So I've also taught people how to share these things. I've given them a way of talking about these things, which enables each person to have space held for them to be the storyteller and the creator and get undivided attention and then get non-authoritarian feedback and be guided towards action, 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 creative action, creative play, healing movement, to go with the strength of the dream. So active dreaming is about getting active with your dreams in many senses, learning to go consciously into the dream space and have adventures there and bring back gifts, learning to get active with your dreams of life and your dreams of the night with those around you, learning to share your stories and hear theirs and support them in everyday situations. So that's what it's all about. Well, in that light, I've been uh, playing with your exercises in Dream Gates and... Um, flying into different territories, and um, I had this remembrance of a dream that 
I had some time ago with you in it, uh, in Dreamtime, and you come up from the waters, and you're full of seaweed, Robert, and there's caves around, and I'm on this rocky prominence. Remind, and as I was reading Dreamgates in one section, and playing with the information you have there and all the exercises, you relate a series of dreams that you had yourself about being that same kind of territory. So I took that that moment and I went there and um, saw a lot of things that I hadn't seen in that first dream. So um, in the caves and um, mirroring some of what you have in the book. So that was very exciting to go to another Another place in time with uh, other other things that and people and entities and animals that I had no idea were there on first round. So, well, that's great, and you're practicing one of the core things that we do, which is which is what we call dream reentry. It means going back into a dream, or we can go tracking, we can go scouting, we can borrow a locale that we think we have some right and some reason to enter and go consciously into the dream space that way. That's a core technique. Let me comment briefly on the Robert full of seaweed, as you put it. I assume you mean I was draped in seaweed, or do you mean that I'd swallowed a lot of seaweed? <laughs> you were just full of seaweed, and you were like, you had been in the water a long time. You were all shriveled up, kind of. You didn't exactly look like what uh-huh. I remember you just looking like. Well, synchronistically, um, well, I, I love the water, and I'm a guy who doesn't spend nearly as much time in the water as I would like to, so I rather like the idea that this old man of the sea that Robert has become has been down there in the deep for a long time. I, I love that impression of me. But I was actually looking for it. I don't think I can pull it up quickly enough. But yesterday, a therapist from North Carolina, and you and I met in North Carolina. She was not at the conference where we met, but a therapist who's now doing my training for teachers of active dreaming uh, posted a dream in a closed group yesterday saying that she dreamed of me and I'm surrounded by bears and there's all this happy great stuff going on and I, I'm, I'm yawning a little bit because so many people dream of me in connection with bears that it's almost absurd and then then she talks to the Robert Moss of her dream and he says I'm not Robert Moss I've put on his form so you'll understand that I am a significant guide to you and you'll pay attention and I love the fact that the psychoanalyst in her dream is being told by Robert Moss in her dream he is not Robert Moss but he's also not saying that he's not a transpersonal figure. He's saying that I put on this disguise so that you will hear me with the right respect and attention. I love that. Mary, Mary I get a minimum of 20 deta- detailed, specific dream reports a day in which I'm a central character, often from people I do not know. When I have a connection with people, I'm open to the idea that there might be a transpersonal factor. I'm also always going to play the psychological game of saying I would ask myself what part of me is like Robert or what part of my inner guidance system puts on the disguise of Robert in order to speak to me. But having said that, I'll also say that dreaming is social, dreaming is transpersonal, something that Western psychology is still very, very confused about. Every indigenous culture knows this. Our ancestors know it. Dreaming is social. It's transpersonal. We get out and about. We get around. Everything we meet is not just an aspect of ourselves. It might be another player, another dreamer, an entity that's visiting. It might be the muse. It might be the genius, for goodness sake. I think I met a muse last night in my dreams, and that's a very cool thing to do. So, you know, when Robert shows up in people's dreams, this Robert tends to say, well, if you like the dream and it had great after effects, I'll take all the credit. If you didn't like it, don't blame it on me. <laughs> See, I live this stuff. I live this play. I was once giving a, I was once giving a lecture a long time ago, and some very serious guy said, bottom line it for me, what is all of this about? 
And I said, remember to play. And he wrote it down in his notebook. And I said, I don't think you've quite got the message. So another one of your books is called The Three Only Things on Dreams, Coincidence, and Imagination. So elaborate a little more on these only things you talk about. Well, we in the West have great difficulty talking about certain things, and we have a tendency to say it's only a dream, for example. Parents say that to their kids, and the kids stop trusting them when the parents send the kids back into a place which might have been a place of terror, saying it's only a dream, go back to sleep. Kids don't trust adults. It's one of the dumbest and cruelest and stupidest things adults do is to say to kids, it's only a dream. Kids know that good or bad, marvelous, or terrifying, what goes on in dreams is real. And they're right. Young children are absolutely right about this. They know that dreaming is surreal. Dreaming involves experiences and other realities. So we have this tendency of saying it's only a dream. We say that to wish away dreams that contain material we'd rather not look at. We also do this to blow off possibilities, alluring possibilities that dreams show us that we think we cannot manifest in waking life. You have a dream in which you're with your perfect lover, your perfect home, doing your perfect work, surrounded by the resources, the landscapes that you love, and you wake up, you think, I'm too old, I don't have the money, I can't do it, and you blow it off, and you say, it's only a dream, it's just a dream. So we say it's only a dream. We have even more trouble talking about coincidence. Jung despaired of ever getting people to talk about coincidence coherently, so he invented the word synchronicity, which I don't like all that much, which I use because of recognition and people don't tend to be quite as quite as mixed up about when they hear synchronicity. They understand that synchronicity is meaningful, whether or not they experience it. But in general, we say it's only coincidence, or we say even worse, it was or wasn't coincidence, meaning if it was coincidence, it doesn't matter, and if it wasn't coincidence, it's surreal. People are hopelessly tongue-tied about this. Coincidence is a great word in its original meaning, which is about bringing things together, bringing things together from different orders of reality. But we say only coincidence, and then, of course, we say only imagination, d dismissing the power of making things up. In fact, we say to ourselves, am I making this up, depriving ourselves of the power and healing gifts of the imagination. Everything humans do is a consequence of their imagination or their lack of imagination. The body believes our images and thoughts. We can change the behavior of the body, reprogram the pharmaceuticals factory inside the body by how we use our imagination. We can bring ourselves up or down by the practice of imagination. And if we don't think we can do this, well, we're damning ourselves, condemning ourselves to a narrow life. So we say, it's just my imagination. It's only my imagination. So when I titled this book, which is probably the easiest access to my work. I've written 22 books now, Steve. This is but nine nonfiction books on active dreaming. The Three Only Things is probably the easiest access for people at any level to what all of this is about. It is simple, powerful, everyday techniques for playing with dreams, coincidence, and imagination, leavened and, and released and informed and juiced by the most wonderful, wonderful stories. Many of them my own. It starts with five tales of synchronicity, chance encounters on the road on five different airplanes. Read that. Let it, let it simmer. Let it marinate inside you and see how your engagements with people in everyday life as you wander around the world can change and become more interesting and how a fizz of magic can come into your day. Because I'll say this as clearly as I can. Dreaming is not fundamentally about what happens during sleep. It's fundamentally about waking up. 
and becoming alive to the play of coincidence around you, to the way the world is giving you signs and symbols, which are not the same thing but are both interesting at every turning, is part of being a dreamer 24-7. So that's what the three only things is all about. And I noticed that it, uh, it changes people's lives. The first of my books on all of this is Conscious Dreaming, and that in some ways is still my foundation book. That is truly a flying book. I heard from a fellow in the Midwest many years ago that he was in a bookstore in Boulder, Colorado, where I'll be soon, and a book flew off the shelf and hit him in the third eye. And he bent down. It was conscious dreaming. He'd never heard of me. He honored the synchronicity. He honored the whack on the vision center, the tap on the third eye, took the book home, read it, and invited me to give a workshop in his town. He was a shamanic practitioner. So these books get around, and they get into people's dreams. And I love to see people pick up any one of these books and open it at random and read what is in front of it and not feel they have to start at the beginning and go to the end, plod, plod, plod. Because although I can write driving narrative, I'm a novelist and historian as well as everything else, I, I like people to play with my books just as I would like them to play with life. Robert, you say that dreams are a creative studio. So I wonder, first of all, a lot of people do not, know of your work, and I wonder if you could just share a bit about your story and how you were led to do the work that you are doing as a dream teacher, and if you could share maybe one or two short stories about some other creative people in, that we know of, either historically or currently, that have been led to their creative work through dreams. Yeah, a lot of people don't know about my work, Mary Alice, but I'm delighted to say a growing number do. <laughs> Absolutely. Whether people, people know about me or not, I'm delighted to respond to this invitation. Okay, so my life changed in midlife. I decided I was a best-selling thriller writer, uh, but my soul was clawing at me to do something more than make lots of money and you know have people ask for my autographs. In those days, I get on a plane and six people would be reading one of my thrillers on the same plane. But it sounds like people's dream. But I was bored. I was unhappy. There seemed to be a hollow at the core of my life. I didn't like my books being weighed up like pounds of hamburger meat. So I had some money. I bought a lot of land in upstate New York and went and lived on it. I bought the land because a hawk spoke to me. I'm sitting behind a rundown farmhouse under a white oak tree. I think I don't know anybody in this part of the world. I'm from another country. I've been connected with New York City. But am I really going to come up here and into you know, this very rural part? of New York State and live on a farm in an area where I know nobody and turn my back on everything. I'm sitting under the white oak tree, a tree that my ancestors knew, of course, and a red-tailed hawk comes circling lower and lower, screaming at me, squalling at me, urgently in a language I feel I should be able to speak but do not speak at the time, and drops a feather between my legs. So I bought the farm. On the farm, I became interested in local history and thought I might write a novel about the American Revolution. Then I discovered some characters from an earlier time, and so I'm beginning to look into the history of this area. It's on the edge of traditional Mohawk Indian land, Iroquois, Haudenosaunee, Onkwekonwe land. And I start dreaming in a language I do not know. It starts one night when I find myself flying out of the body. Not exotic for me. I've done this all my life. I'm just out of my body in the middle of the night, and I'm enjoying flying around over the landscape on the wings of a red-tailed hawk, it seems. And I feel the tug of a distant intention, and I follow it. I don't have to, but I follow it. And now I'm in a cabin in the woods, somewhere around where Montreal is today. I'm not sure whether Montreal is in the dream or not, probably in some version, but highways are not there, developments are not there. It's a different time. And I'm with a wonderful ancient woman, beautiful woman, 
who speaks to me while stroking a beaded belt, a wampum belt, and uh, with a wolf and two human beings on it. And she speaks this lovely musical cadence language like lake water lapping, wave over wave, and I don't understand a word because I don't speak a language. It's not a new age dream where you know everything right away. It's a mysterious dream. I come out of this lucid dream or astral journey, uh, juiced, charged. I start writing down things phonetically, and I think, well, this is important, and there'll be more, and there is. This goes on, and I'm now writing down phonetically over several weeks words, and then synchronistically I meet my first friend of the Iroquois people, the Confederacy of the Longhouse. He's actually on Indaga. He knows the belt. He shows me the belt. He's in charge of the Iroquois Wampum Archives, which were in the New York State Archives at the time. He knows the belt from my dream. He looks at the picture. He unlocks a metal chair case, and he shows me an old wampum belt with a wolf and two human figures. He says, we believe these are the ancient credentials of the mother of the wolf clan of the Mohawk people, and it would be appropriate for a woman of power to speak to you over her credentials. He introduces me to native speakers and linguists, and they listen to me, and they make me write things, and they say, Robert, you're very hard to understand. It's not just your Anglo-Australian accent, but you are speaking the Mohawk of 300 years ago. It's like listening to an Englishman speaking Shakespearean English. You're speaking Mohawk, but it's not the way people speak it today. It's old, and there's some Huron in it. So now I'm studying the Mohawk language, and now I'm studying the Huron language as well, and now I'm spending time on Indian reservations, and because I'm a writer and scholar and independent, independent scholar, I acquire every book I possibly can, including the 73 volumes of the Jesuit Relations, the books in which the early missionaries recorded their interactions with the Native Americans in the Northeast. And I realize I'm being drawn into a way of dreaming and healing that is deeper than my culture understands. It understands that this is all about soul. It's all about survival, too. Dreams show us the future, and they help us to make better futures for ourselves, our families, our communities. But at the heart of it all, it's about soul, finding what the soul wants, finding where the soul goes and getting it back in the body. So I'm having these experiences, Mary Alice, and it's not easy to fit into the life I've been leading. I've already separated from that life to some extent. I'm living on the farm. I've changed my life. But this unfolds now over several years of what Jung would have called a confrontation with the unconscious. Some of the experiences were as ragged, as terrifying, as dark, and and potentially deadly as Jung's experience of tracking through his underworld, which we understand better through the Red Book. My experiences are something like that, and they're not quickly resolved. It requires me to go to deeper, deeper, deeper places, and essentially to reincarnate myself within this body, within this lifetime. I'm writing about that now. I'm writing about that more openly than I've chosen to do, and that's probably why I'm answering you at such length. The passion is characteristic, but the length is not necessarily characteristic. Out of all this, I eventually find my way to follow a career track for which there is no recognized path in our culture. I am a dream teacher. I'm not a psychologist. I don't run around calling myself a shaman. I'm not an academic. I'm a little bit of all of those things. But I teach an approach to dreaming which is radically different in our culture. I'm indebted to other good people, done good things, but I'm above all indebted to the dream people who, who came to me and showed me how they wanted to do things. So this was what remade my life. My life didn't begin there. When I was a child, I had deep experiences of the world through what are today called near-death experiences. But the story that is relevant to you at this moment really begins with this radical watershed in midlife in, in a time when uh, a dream people came looking for me. They came hunting me, and they found me. And eventually, 
the invitation was so strong, the uh, the work was so important, it was the work, as Jung called it, with a big capital W, the work, that I couldn't turn away from it anymore. It wasn't easy, it wasn't straightforward, uh, there were problems of, you know, the feeding the kids and paying the mortgage and all of that in the midst of all these radical changes, and it took several years to get it together, but I'm very glad that it came together. So here we are. I'm very glad as well, and I know there are lots of other people in our world who have are, are creating or have created out of their own, from their dreams and from the impulses that came from their dreams, and which you share in many of your books. I guess I didn't respond to the the main burden of your question. I got off on that watershed experience. In terms of my own life, all of my books are now generated and guided by dreams and synchronicity, all of them. Since the events that I talked about, I've written three major historical novels of the Iroquois and their neighbors. I've written nine nonfiction books about active dreaming. I've published a book of poems and stories. I've done audio and video books as well, and there are several more in the pipeline. All of these are directly informed, energized by the dreams. When I write novels or stories, thoughts of the characters, plot elements are filled in from my dreams. Uh, My secret history of dreaming contains a lot of stories about how creativity comes about in dreams, and especially, I would say, from that border state, the state Tinkerbell called the place between sleep and awake, the hypnagogic zone, that liminal zone. I call it the solution state in the secret history of dreaming in relation to the history of science. So many scientific breakthroughs have come through in that in-between, drifty, border state. When you're not awake, you're not asleep, you're somewhere in between, it's a great way to embark upon lucid dreaming. It's a great place to make creative creative connections that are not otherwise available. My favorite case study, other than myself, for writers being guided by dreams is Graham Greene, the consummate English novelist and entertainer, who every day of his life turned out his 500 and 750 words of draft, whatever he'd been doing the night before, and kept a dream journal resolutely for most of his life since he had what was considered a complete breakdown when he was a teen and was sent to a an early a psychiatrist, Shrink, in London, who had uh, learned a little bit from Freud and a little bit from others, and basically told Graham Greene, aged 16 or 17, to come in at 11 o'clock every morning for the three months he was in London and tell him a dream. So Graham Greene would go in and he'd tell him a dream, and when he didn't have a dream, he'd make something up. So this was developing the arts of storytelling. But then when you track his immensely prolific life, and he, you read his letters, you read his memoirs, you read his biographies, because I'm the kind of independent scholar who has to read everything on the subject he's embarking upon. So I read a lot about Green. Uh, when you follow that, you notice the nuts and bolts of how a writer can work with this. You see him borrowing dialogue and character traits for characters from his dreams. You see him dreaming a missing scene when he's stuck or blocked in bringing through a narrative and putting that into the book. You see him inspired and guided at every turning. The problem with most other books, many other books on this kind of thing, is that they don't tell us enough about the process. They give us a few chestnuts. They give us a few sort of one-paragraph summaries. I want to know how it works day by day. I want to know how it works in the deep process and texture of a creative life. So I studied Graham Greene, and my study of Graham Greene is in The Secret History of Dreaming. And so is my study of many other writers and creators who've been inspired the same way. You know, they're all the one-liners we can say, you know, yesterday Paul McCartney's song came from Bream. Yes, it did. But what is far more interesting to me is to look, as I say, at how this feeds into the whole texture of a creative life. And uh, Green is one of a number of interesting studies. 
Robert, I have to stop us there and say thank you very much for joining us on Creativity and Play. And you can find more about Robert's books and work at mossdreams.com at his website. And uh, Robert Moss is the creator of Active Dreaming and the author of his latest book, Here Everything is Dreaming. Our theme music is Kindergarten, composed and performed by Jonathan Batiste. And you can listen to this show and previous shows again. Find more information about our guests and sign up to be notified about coming shows at creativityandplay.com. And find Creativity and Play on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Ellis Long. Thank you, Robert, for joining us today. My pleasure. May your best dreams come true. Thank you, too. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.